Now, each of these messages in 1 Kings is trying to teach us about who God is, and Israel certainly needs to understand the God that they serve. They have moved so far away uh, from God at this point uh, that they have really no concept of the kind of God that they are supposed to be uh, serving. One of the things that comes up is that You're seeing Israel ultimately not understand the greatness and the vastness of God. Uh, And that, I think, becomes one of the reasons for the huge mistakes that they make, uh, is that they see God like the idols and the pagan gods. uh, Their God is small, ultimately, in their eyes and is not the majestic true and living God that they ought to consider. And because of that, they make numerous mistakes. And in 1 Kings 20, uh, we're going to see that certainly come about as there's going to be a number of people making all kinds of mistakes because they don't understand who God is. Uh, And as we go through that, then we will talk about how we can sometimes make similar uh, mistakes like that. In 1 Kings chapter 20, things are not going well for the nation of Israel, that northern part. We've seen that Ahab is the king at that time. He is the worst king that Israel ultimately ever has. And at this time, you have the king of Syria named Ben-Hadad, and he lays siege to the capital city called Samaria. And his demands are pretty simple. You'll notice in Verse 3, he just simply says, uh, your silver, your gold, and your wives and your children are mine. There you go. And to show you how bad it is for Israel and for Ahab at this point, in verse 4, Ahab says, okay. (laughs) He just commits to that and goes, that's fine. I will accept those terms as the terms of peace. I'll let you take uh, my wives and my children. You can have the silver and the gold and and all that. You can essentially plunder Samaria and and I'll let you do that and that will be fine. And what is interesting, it almost seems to be that because Ahab so quickly says yes, without any negotiation or response whatsoever, you'll notice in verse 5 that it says, Ben-Hadad sends messengers again and says, I know that I said your silver and your gold and your wives and your children, but um, we're going to have our servants come through your servants' houses and just take whatever they want to. And this time Ahab says, I can't do that. That's that's not going to work. I agreed to you coming into my palace and taking my silver, my gold, my wives and my children. But for you to now simply go through Samaria and go ahead and take whatever you want, anyone you want, anything you want, that's not going to work for me. And so he sends message back to Ben-Hadad and says, I I can accept the first terms, but not the second terms, as he says there in in verse 9. And so Ben-Hadab then responds and says, well, here's what's going to happen to you. There's not going to be anything left of Samaria. The imagery he uses is great when he says in verse 10 that, may the gods do to me also and more, if the dust of Samaria shall suffice for the hands full for all the people who follow me. Basically, There's going to be not anything but a little bit of dust left of your town. So little of it will be left after I get done with it that my people won't even be able to grab enough in their hands. I'm going to pulverize the place. 
Ahab responds with a nice little one of his own when he says in verse 11, uh, tell him, let not him who straps on his armor boast himself as if when he takes it off. Essentially, don't count your chickens before they hatch. <laughs> so uh, don't be talking like someone who's won the war when we haven't even started the war yet. So an interesting back and forth happens in the middle of all that. And fascinating enough, but not surprising, Ahab doesn't talk to God about this in the slightest. And yet the most amazing thing happens is that a prophet in verse 13 comes to Ahab and simply says, Thus says the Lord, Have you seen all this great multitude? Behold, I will give it into your hand this day. And you shall know that I am the Lord. For whatever reason, we have God sending a message through an unnamed prophet that comes to Ahab and says, you are going to win. Now, it is important for us to get a sense of what God is doing and why he's doing it. The why is given to us here when it says, then you will know I am the Lord. God is constantly trying to teach Ahab Israel and the world, here's who God is. And so God says, I'm going to give Ahab the victory. But to understand what a hopeless situation this ultimately is, is also really important. Number one, as we just noticed, for Ben-Hadad to say, I want to take everything in your palace and everyone in your palace, you simply go, yes, indicates how you believe you're going to lose catastrophically. If you just simply agree to those terms and say, hey, take whatever you want, that's fine, shows how outnumbered they are. It's also told to us even a little bit more clearly in speaking to this hopeless situation when already you see in verse 13, it says, have you seen this great multitude talking about the Syrian army that is all over the countryside? Have you seen all of this army that is against you? Well, they then are going to uh, be given into your hand ultimately. When the, when the count is, is taken care of and everything is, is figured out, verse 15 tells us that he musters all of his, his army and all of his servants. And we get in verse 15, 7,000. We have 7,000 against the Syrian army that's all over the countryside. And this appears to be such a lopsided situation that back in verse 12, we're told that when the message comes from Ahab about, you know, you shouldn't be boasting like you were someone taking off your armor. Uh, we're told there in verse 12 that Ben-Hadad and the kings are all drinking away in their booths. And in verse 16, it's even emphasized again that Ben Hadid and them, there as all they're are mustering for battle, they're drinking themselves away and are drunk in their boots. So they obviously think we don't even need to be sober for this battle. Uh, we're going to win in a massively decisive fashion. And so that is ultimately what they are preparing to do. Uh, his command, of course, is uh, rather hilarious. I don't know how to understand the command verse 18 here's what he says in speaking about these men who were coming from ahab if they have come for peace take them alive and if they've come out for war take them alive i don't know if you've ever thought about somebody coming at you for war trying to take them alive what that would 
how that would exactly work. <laughs> that uh, gives you a sense of how completely out of touch Ben Hadad and these kings are. Oh, well, you know, whoever these Israelites that are coming for us, well, if they want peace, take them alive. And if they want a war with us, we'll take them alive too, you know. And then what's hilarious is then in verse 19, they go out to battle and absolutely get whipped. <laughs> the Israelites utterly and completely wipe out Syria in a catastrophic fashion. Verse 20, Ben-Hadad is able to escape on horse, but the Syrians are fleeing, striking them down, striking down horses and chariots with a great blow. Verse 21, and all of that being done, the Syrians think, well, the reason why we lost this battle and why it was such a catastrophe on our part is the, the gods of Israel are gods of the hills. And, and we foolishly fought them on the hills. So what we need to do is find a good flat area. Let's find a big plain. Because their gods won't work very well in the plains. They only work in the hills. Well, God sends a message now to Ahab and says, the Syrians are going to come back next year. And because they think that I'm a god of the hills and not a god everywhere... We're going to whip them again. <laughs> so make your preparations. Get ready for next spring because the Syrians are going to come back and do it again. Verse 26, that's exactly what happens as Ben-Hadab then musters his Syrians and gets his army ready together and makes provisions to go up and, and fight against them. And I want you to see they're just as outnumbered this time as last time. Verse 27 gives you the imagery it says the people of Israel were mustered and were provisioned and went out against them. The people of Israel encamped before them like two little flocks of goats. But the Syrians filled the country. <laughs> so, I mean, you can just imagine, all right, here's this plain in the middle and here comes Israel from one side. And they look like a couple of flocks of goats coming down the other side. And then over here on the other side, it's just a swarm and mass of people. As they all come over the hill, ready to battle in this plain of Aphek. And so God makes the declaration in verse 28. Because the Syrians have said the Lord is a God of the hills and is not a God of the valleys. Therefore, I will give all this great multitude into your hand and you shall know that I am the Lord. So the hopeless situation is put before them again. The confidence that they thought they had before was also coming back in, into this again. And I think it is interesting to see that with this outnumbering and ultimately this belief that, that Israel was going to surely lose, you notice in verse 29, it says they encamped opposite one of, of them for seven days. And then on the seventh day, the battle was joined and the people of Israel struck down the Syrian foot soldiers, a hundred thousand of them in one day. If that were not enough, verse 30, the rest of them fled into the city of Aphek. And a wall fell upon 27,000 of those men who were left. And you have now Ben-Hadad fleeing into the inner chamber. Here again, God is showing he is not a localized God. Now, Ben-Hadad's servants have an interesting idea. How are we going to get out of this trouble? We just lost 127,000. 
in one day. And we're told in verse 31, the servants come to Ben-Hadad while he's hiding in this inner chamber in this house. And they say to him, we have heard that the kings of the house of Israel are merciful kings. Let's put on sackcloth around our waists and ropes around our heads and go out to the king of Israel and perhaps he'll spare your life. So Ben-Hadad is essentially going to surrender now. And they say, let's try to generate some mercy. We'll all put on sackcloth. We'll put these ropes on our heads and we'll, we'll just be really sorry and we'll see if we can get some mercy. Verse 32, they tied the sackcloth around their waist and put the ropes on their heads and they went to the king of Israel and said, your servant Ben-Hadad says, please let me live. And look at Ahab's response. Ahab says at the end of verse 32, does he still live? He is my brother. Now, he's not actually a brother. (laughs) For whatever reason, Ahab feels some kind of connection to Ben-Hadad and says, oh, is he still alive? He is my brother. Look at this in verse 33. Now the men were watching for a sign and they quickly took it up from him. Yes, yes, your brother Ben-Hadad. They're just saying, oh yes, he really cares about you. He's your great brother. Yeah, yeah, that's right. You two are like kin, you know. You guys are great friends, even though just the other day and last year you said you were going to we were going to take your wives and your children and your silver and your gold. Let's not think about that any. And so here Ahab says, yes, go up and, and bring him. And so Ben-Hadid comes out and he comes out of the chariot in the, at the end of verse 33. And in verse 34, Ben-Hadid now dictates the terms of peace. The cities that my father took from your father, I'll restore. And, may, and you may establish bazaars for yourself in the Damascus as my father did in Samaria. And Ahab said, I will let you go on these terms. And so he made a covenant with him and let him go. So Ben-Hadad just kind of lays out the whole terms of peace and just says, well, here, I'll let you like allow your guy people to do shopping in Damascus. And that'll be great. You can sell your stuff there and just let me go. And Ahab goes, okay, that sounds great. Uh, And God's really not happy about that. And he's going to show how. In verse 35, we have a certain man of the sons of the prophets. And he says to another person at the command of the Lord, strike me, please. And the man refused to strike him. And so then he said to him, because you have not obeyed the voice of the Lord, behold, as soon as you have gone from me, a lion will strike you down. And as soon as he had departed from him, a lion met him and struck him down. And so this man found another man and said, strike me, please. And the man struck him, struck him and wounded him. And so the prophet departed and waited for the king, by the way, disguising himself with a bandage over his eyes. So already starts by going to some other guy and saying, hey, hit me. And the guy goes, no. And he goes, well, because you didn't do what God said, uh, you're going to be devoured by a lion. And so then he goes up to the other guy, strike me, please. And he learned the lesson, goes, okay, I'll do that. And he hits him and wounds him. And you can imagine him now looking kind of all beat up. As he's now Ahab is going to ride by. And so you'll notice then what happens in verse 39. It says, as the king passed by, he cried to the king, your servant went out into the midst of the battle. And behold, a soldier turned and brought a man to me and said, guard this man. If by any means he is missing, your life shall be for his life or else you will pay a talent of silver. So he tells a little story here. He says, here, here, he doesn't realize this story. He tells the story and says, 
All right, I, here I was, we were in the middle of the battle. Another soldier said, guard this man, and I need to guard him with my life. And if I don't guard him with my life, it'll be my life for his or pay a talent of silver. Verse 40, and as your servant was busy here and there, I love that, you know, you're just kind of doing your thing, wasn't really paying attention. He was gone. And the king of Israel said to him, so shall your judgment be. You yourself have declared it. Verse 41, he hurried to take the bandage away from his eyes and the king of Israel recognized him as one of the prophets. And he said to him, thus says the Lord, because you have let go out of your hand, the man who I'm devoted to destruction, therefore your life shall be for his life and your people for his people. And the king of Israel went into his house, vexed and sullen and came to Samaria. So interesting, Ahab agrees with this whole story. Oh, well, you said that you would watch this person life for a life and agrees with the verdict or pay a talent of silver. And the verdict then is flipped around upon Ahab himself because he let Ben-Hadad go. Therefore, judgment should fall upon you, Ahab, because you have not fulfilled the command of the Lord. And in typical Ahab fashion, we are not surprised by this ending Ahab goes away angry and sullen and kicking rocks and upset because that's what he always does at the end of every chapter. And so he does the same thing here. Now, there are a number of things that ultimately are mistakes and go wrong throughout this chapter. And ultimately, the thing that I want us to talk about is how nobody understands or comprehends the vastness of God, that their God is ultimately too small. And I hope that as we went through this chapter, you were able to see some of the mistakes about the way Ahab and the way Syria and the way a number of these people are thinking about ultimately who God is and the very nature of who he is first. Your God is too small if you think that God cannot do good in spite of evil. I think one of the most startling things about the chapter and how it all opens and begins is I would suppose at least my expectation would be, okay, here are the Syrians and they are this massive multitude. And you would just stand back and have the prophet of the Lord come to Ahab and say, this is what you deserve. You're a very wicked king. <laughs> and this is going to be your judgment for that. And we should just be amazed at God who is going to give Ahab of all people this victory. That God is able to do good to Ahab and to Israel. Even though Israel has wandered far from God, remember what Elijah said, they've torn down your altars, they've forsaken the covenant, they do not care about you in the slightest. Ahab himself does not care about God, he is not seeking God, he is constantly doing evil, he's not looking for what God's will ultimately is, and yet God is still doing good even in the face of evil, even to a wicked person like Ahab. And I think it's important to see that this is part of the character of God, 
is that God will still do good even in the face of evil. That God makes it rain on the righteous and the unrighteous, that he will do good to all people. And I think that's an important thing for us to keep in mind. That our God is too small if we think God will only do good things to good people and will only do bad things to bad people. That's not how God works. And one of the reasons that came to my mind is I, I've, we, I, I will touch on the song that we often talk about, which says, you know, not being able to understand why those out there living so wicked year after year, how they're able to do well. But I want us to see this is one of God's answers is that God does good to all people. He, he does good to all people. And if you can see him do good to Ahab of all people, then he certainly is willing to do good even in the face of evil. And clearly, as we saw in the text, he has reason and has purpose to what he is doing. In fact, that purpose is ultimately displayed again and again where he says, I'm going to do this so that people will know that I am the Lord. That's one of the reasons why God will do good even in the face of evil is that that goodness is supposed to cause people to go, I need to look to God. That God is the reason behind why things are going well. And yet sometimes what happens with that goodness and the second mistake that people make is that our God is too small if we think that God showing us goods means we don't have to obey. Because that's usually the fatal step that happens. Is that, well, God's doing me good, so I don't have to do what he says. And that's ultimately what Ahab is doing in this chapter. Is that, well, okay, God's doing me good. He's giving me victory. And that victory causes him to not care that Ben-Hadad has been destined to destruction. That God was judging Syria and judging Ben-Hadad and Ahab didn't care about that. And so he looks at it and goes, well, since God is blessing me and giving me victory over Syria and victory over Ben-Hadad, that means I can do whatever I want in this situation. And that's not true. And so often what happens is we go, okay, well, God's doing good. So that means I don't need to obey. I don't need to do what he says. And that's not at all the point that was supposed to happen. In fact, that's even illustrated a second time in the text with the son of the prophet who goes up to the other person and says, hit me. Now, would you have not been tempted to be like the first person and say, well, I'm not going to hit you. That's not right. <laughs> that's not what God would want me to do is to hit you. That doesn't make any sense. And yet, because the person does not strike him, he's judged and condemned. And I think it's important to see that when we are talking about this idea, so often what we can have the tendency to do is to use our own logic to negate what God has said. And we really have a fine way of doing that right now with a lot of God's laws. You know, well, God can't mean what he says about marriage and divorce and stuff. That doesn't make any sense. I don't like that. So we're not going to listen to that. And since God's doing well with us, we don't have to follow that. We'll use our own logic to somehow get around that. Well, what God says about sexual immorality and, and the like, well, that's kind of antiquated and old school and puritanical and all that kind of stuff. And so that can't be right. 
Well, that's what we do with God's laws. We come along and go, well, since things are going well, we can kind of adjust what God says and we'll use our logic and our reason. And I want us to see why that can't happen, especially because Ahab seems like, by human logic and reason, he's doing a merciful thing. I'll let Ben-Hadad go. I'll be merciful to Ben-Hadad. Now, Ben-Hadad, he just made a few mistakes. And so he just, you know, he needs a third chance here. Just give him another opportunity. And Ahab lets him go. And, And I want us to see that God is upset with Ahab for doing that and pronounces judgment upon him that, yes, there are times for mercy, but there are also times for judgment. And that is what is being missed right here is God is saying, I delivered him into your hand for judgment and you refuse to take that. That there is a time where we have to say there is condemnation for sin. And I think that again is very hard in our world construct right now. Everybody's a-okay. You know, it's all just fine. And God doesn't really care about how you live your life and what you're doing. And eventually there has to be the line in the sand of you've got to follow what God says. And that's what's happening here for Ben-Hadad and with Ahab. Ahab, it was not for you to give another chance of mercy at this moment. It was time for judgment. It was time for that to happen. And we have to be willing to do that, to follow God's ways and walk in justice as well as in mercy. That, yep, there are times where it should be mercy and grace, but there are times where you go, no, that's wrong, and you can't do that anymore. And you can't keep going down that path. And so you see Ahab making that very mistake. In fact, that mistake is really the essence of the whole false worldview that you see of the Syrians in this text. What they think is absolutely hysterical the syrians go we their god of israel he's like our gods and so if we fight in certain locations that's going to debilitate god we that god doesn't rule over every area he only rules over certain areas and i hope that as laughable as that is and as much as we as Christians will say, oh, no, God rules over all things and over all people and over all places that no one can hide from God, that he is a true and living God who rules over heaven and earth. We sometimes then act in the very same way. Like, do we have God ruling over our lives when we're on the job? Or is that over there somewhere that God isn't in effect at that point? Or is God ruling over our lives and our marriage? Or is God not in effect at that point? Does God only operate on Sundays for us, but not the other days of the week? Does God operate and rule over our lives when it comes to our family and some of our children and in our homes or in our communities or here even in the church or in any place where we have relationships? You see, sometimes what we can do is go, oh, yes, God rules over all things. But then we do make exceptions of when we're going to apply that. Well, I don't have to be godly now, you know, but certainly right now, but not you know, tomorrow. You know, I can go back to the way I always was. 
we need to be very careful that sometimes this is the way we come at God is with this kind of logic where we think, well, we can just disregard what God says at certain times, at certain places, with certain people under certain circumstances. That's what Ahab is doing. And we need to be very careful that we do not look at God at that light. Number three, your God is too small if you are not full of thanksgiving. I think one of the things that is striking to me about this chapter is nowhere in here do you see any gratitude by Ahab for these completely undeserved victories. You notice that? Ahab has gone from, hey, you can take my wife, my kids, my silver, and my gold to a total victory over 127,000 people that are at least numbered versus the 7,000 of their own army. And there is no, hey, thank you, God, for giving me that victory. They were going to take all our stuff. They were going to plunder us completely. We were going to be in servitude to them, but it is because of God that we have been able to be rescued. Ahab had no options, and yet God rescued him, but there was absolutely no thankfulness. And I hope that we would realize that when we lack thankfulness, What we are ultimately showing and what we are ultimately saying to God is he is not sovereign over our circumstances. Because what we are saying to God is, well, that worked out because of me. Or that situation worked out because it was just some good luck. Or that situation worked out because somebody else did something. And we don't put it on God and say, God, you're the reason why I was able to come through this circumstance. You're the reason why I'm here where I'm at. We start chalking it up to everything else and everyone else. And that's where Ahab is at, is that he was even told that this was the Lord's doing. And he still lacked thankfulness. And friends, our God is too small in our minds if we are not constantly thankful for where we are, how we've gotten to this point, how we've been blessed, and everything ultimately that has happened into into our lives. We need to be thankful to God. And finally, number four, your God is too small if your response to him is to be angry and sullen rather than repentant. It is interesting to see that Ahab over and over again makes these mistakes and his response every single time is to be angry and sullen. He is resentful. And we need to understand something about God. It is seen with Ahab a number of times. God is not moved by our temper tantrums. He knows that Ahab pitches a fit all the time. And God does not come to Ahab and say, you know, I'm so sorry that I had upset you about that. I'll retract that judgment. I feel bad for saying those tough words to you about how you should have dealt with Ben-Hadad. It's something that is sad because 
As, as children, sometimes children push their parents to make the mistake of, oh, they're having a temper tantrum, so you give in to them just to be quiet. And then we learn as adults, hey, we'll just, you know, pitch fits and be angry and throw temper tantrums and make everybody all nervous about so we can get our way. God doesn't care. You can get all angry at God all you want to and pitch a fit all you want to. About how you don't like whatever you don't like, and God doesn't care. God is not moved by that. And you don't see God moved by that with regards to Ahab. And what is so sad is, did you notice that Ahab missed his repentance moment? It was very subtle in the text. And because he's all angry and upset, He missed it. Let's back up and notice it for a minute. Remember what the story was that this prophet gave to Ahab? It's in verse 39. He tells this story about a soldier and I'm supposed to guard him with my life. It says at the end of verse 39, And if by any means he is missing, it shall be your life for his life. Or else you pay a talent of silver. Now, a talent of silver was an impossibly high price. That is a huge amount in that day and time. But I find it fascinating that within the construct of this story that he tells, he says, here's what the judgment should be. It should be your life or a price needs to be paid. And Ahab doesn't catch that in that story. He doesn't seize upon that. He misses his repentance moment here. When the prophet comes to him with this judgment decree, there could have been the opportunity for repentance, but rather he's angry at being confronted. He's angry at being told that he's done something wrong. And he misses the moment where he can return to God And enjoy this repentance that is being offered to him. This is the big message of the gospel. And here it is sitting quietly within the imagery of Ahab and the prophet. Is that God is willing to pay an impossibly high price so that you can come back to him. But the problem is, we miss it. We miss it. We sin and we get all upset about our sins and we get all upset about condemnation and judgment and rebuke and being told that we're doing something wrong and how we need to come back to God and serve the Lord and do what is right. And we miss that what's in that message is you can come back. That it doesn't have to be life for life. That a price has been paid. And that God was willing to pay that kind of price. That's what the Apostle Peter is writing when he says, if you call on him as father who judges impartially, according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish, or spot. 
Your God is too small. If when you are confronted by sin, you are angry and sullen. Rather than reaching out and grabbing atonement that God has made for you and for me. We need to see that that's why God confronts with sin. And so that people will reach out for repentance. That we will reach out for atonement. Not be angry with God. Not be resentful toward God. Not be bitter toward God. But to see the high price that God has paid. Ahab missed a beautiful opportunity when he tells that story that Ahab could have said, but what about that price thing you said? God was painting a picture that he would pay such a high price so that no one would have to perish, but everyone could come to him and find life in repentance. Is your God too small in your eyes? Let's go to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, I feel like, Lord, it is often far too easy to not see how immense you are. And Lord, I suppose in in many ways that's impossible for us because we are we are human and we are finite and. We are bound by time and we are bound by the flesh. We are bound by life circumstances. And it is difficult for us to even begin to comprehend how vast, how immense, and how majestic you are. Lord, I pray that you would forgive us for when we have held you too small in our hearts, when we have not understood or behaved in a way that represents the fact that you are completely ruler over our lives. You rule over us every day, every hour, in every place, and in every circumstance. And forgive us, Lord, for when we have failed in understanding that and failed to live that way. And Lord, forgive us for the times when we allow our sins to cause us to be dejected rather than being thankful for atonement. Lord, help us to always appreciate and be thankful for all that you have done for us, to never forget what you've accomplished for us. And ultimately, Lord, please help us to always have in our hearts and our minds that Our lives are deserved, but you paid the price of your son so that it did not have to be given. That instead we could be your children rather than receiving the deserved wrath that ought to be upon each and every one of us. Lord, help us to never miss our repentance moments. Prick our hearts every time we wander. Put obstacles in our way every time we're turning the wrong way from you. And give us those opportunities and help us to see those opportunities clearly to come back to you. To seek you with all of our heart. And enjoy the atonement that's found in your son. Lord, thank you for the sacrifice of your son. Thank you for paying an impossibly high price.
a price we could never pay, something we could never attain or achieve. And thank you for loving us, that you would love us as wicked that we may be, that you would still love us, that you would still good do good by us, and still seek for our souls to be with you for eternity. Thank you for that love. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. I'll sing an invitation song now. We invite you to consider the price that God has paid for you. That you would turn to him with all of your heart, seek him, and see that he desires for you to be with him. Turn away from your sins. Confess Jesus to be the Son of God. Repent of those sins. It's not too late. Don't miss your repentance moment. But follow him faithfully and see what God has for you. Won't you come while we stand and while we sing?